0: We look at John chapter 6 this morning and the feeding of the 5,000. Let's read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 15. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Father, Open our eyes now, as it were, to see Jesus, to see him on the mountainside, though not physically by faith, by an understanding of your word. Open your word. May every word and every line find its mark and its point of impact in our minds and in our hearts. And may our lives be conformed around the truths that you have presented us here in your word. And we ask these things, Father, not simply for better understanding, not for the accumulation of facts and knowledge, but for your glory manifest in your maturing us to reflect who you are more accurately, more consistently, and more faithfully. We pray and ask these things all in the name of and for the sake of your dear Son, Father, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ amen. We've read this account and no doubt to most of you, this is a familiar account. In fact, it is one of the most well-known and well-loved miracles and accounts in all of the New Testament. It may be the most well-known miracle that Jesus worked in his three and a half years of earthly ministry. The preeminence of this miracle and feeding the 5000 is verified by scripture as being something that is abnormally important. And I say that because this is the only miracle that all four gospels have a record of. To greater or lesser degrees, they largely share many of the same miracles, many of the same accounts, but they each have their own unique way of showing Jesus to us. And yet this one stands out because it is in all four, unlike other miracles that Jesus works. And so we know it played a pre- pre- predominant role and an important role in the ministry of Jesus. And so this morning, as we look at our text, the role of this miracle for us this morning is not only in what we learn of Jesus by looking at the miracle itself, but the importance of this miracle being recorded by John for us. The importance of it is that we come away this morning with the absolute conviction that Jesus, as God, in his sovereign rule, orchestrates all things and does all things for his own glory. Jesus wastes nothing. It's evident in what Jesus says to the disciples that they are to go and they are to pick up all the fragments that are left so that nothing is wasted. That is not only true of the food, that is true of everything that Jesus does. He doesn't waste anything. There's no chance encounter, there is no wasted days, there are no wasted efforts on Jesus' part. Jesus, as God, as the sovereign of this world, wastes nothing and uses everything to verify who he is and to carry out his mission to seek and to save sinners like me and like you. So we see that clearly demonstrated here in this miracle this morning. Everything points us to something greater than the feeding of the 5,000. Everything, as great as the feeding of the 5,000 is, it is only there to point us to something greater. And that is who Jesus is. Miracles have only and always been used to do two things, and you need to remember this. They're used, number one, to validate the person of Jesus as being Jesus, the Son of God. Secondly, they are used to validate Jesus' message. In the preaching of the gospel, it is proven that His words are true because of the miraculous actions that He accomplishes. It is verifiable by His works. And so this morning, I want you to notice several traits about this miracle that ought to cause every one of us to sit up and sharpen our pencils and take better notes. I want you to see, first of all, in this glorious miracle, the sovereign control of Jesus. The sovereign control of Jesus. We back up to chapter 5 for just a moment, and we realize that all of chapter 5 occurs in one sitting and one setting. Jesus, in chapter 5, had been in Jerusalem. He'd been there by the, the pool of Bethesda, and he heals the paralytic man, upon which the the Pharisees seize him and they begin to question him and they're, they're very agitated by him. Who does he think he is? How dare you perform a miracle on the Sabbath? Only God works on the Sabbath. Yes? You have a question? Jesus is God in this agitates the people to the degree that so early on in his ministry, would you look back at chapter 5, look at verse 16. For this, be reminded of this, we've read this. For this reason, the Jews, predominantly the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Charge number one, you've worked on the Sabbath, Therefore, we will make your life miserable. But it gets worse. Verse 18. For this reason. Same wording. Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. We've gone from. Jesus entering the scene and Jesus being celebrated and Jesus having his reputation go out as a great miracle worker who turned water into wine. Who was the friend of sinners to now very quickly wanting to be murdered by his adversaries. The burning anger of the unregenerate religious Jews burned hot against Jesus Early, I need to remind you as well that it was just a few days before that Jesus receives word that his own cousin has been beheaded. John the Baptist by Herod has, has been beheaded. Why? Because John had the goal to speak the truth. And so Jesus, by his own testimony, by his own work, by his own teaching, has angered the Pharisees. John the Baptist has angered the political rulers of his day. And the mood in Jerusalem at this time is one that has no tolerance for the radical ideas of truth. They're not interested in the truth. They don't want the truth. And if you dare speak the truth, you will suffer. Jesus has done exactly that. May I remind you this morning that the ideas that Jesus taught were radical in his day and they are still radical in our day. And the world has no tolerance and is not in the mood to hear truth. And that's going to become tragically and sadly very obvious by the time we get to the end of chapter 6. Because the same people who we will see in just a moment are so excited to see and hear from Jesus very quickly turn away and leave him. Not because the miracles weren't good enough, but because the words were strong enough to reveal their own hearts to reveal the truth about who he was and to reveal the realities of what they must do to be right with the living God. Rather than stay in Jerusalem where Jesus had been, Jesus eludes their desire for murder. He excuses himself from ritualistic pretense by giving in to their demands. And he moves to a place here in chapter 6 where he will direct the attention as he wills to himself in order to demonstrate the truth of who he is. Jesus escapes according to Mark chapter 6. That's where Mark records this incident. If, If you want to look over in Mark, do that. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 32, this is what we read. Then they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Jesus takes a boat. He goes across the sea by himself with his disciples. And so we know that's how Jesus gets there. Jesus takes a boat. He takes the most direct route. He goes across And he finds a nice, quiet place to spend time with his disciples. Now, from a human perspective, as we read chapter 6, verses 1 to 15 this morning, it might seem like the people are in control. Here is Jesus. He goes away with his disciples to be alone with them. And who wouldn't love a nice countryside retreat these days, right? All the hubbub in the city and all the chaos in the city. Jesus is just going to get away to the hill country beside the lake with his disciples that he loves. Man, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And yet the crowd seems to dictate and control what Jesus ends up doing here in John chapter 6. Becomes one of the most confrontational Episodes of Jesus' ministry. And all Jesus wants to do is be alone with his disciples. There's a mass following Jesus, however, out of Jerusalem. Out of the heated environment. These Jews come running out of Jerusalem. In fact, we read in other accounts that they beat Jesus there almost. I want you to look at something here. In Matthew chapter 14, which is where Matthew records this account. If you look at Matthew's account of this, Matthew chapter 14, it begins in verse 13. We read this, that the people heard of this, they followed him on foot. Now how does Jesus get across the lake? By boat. Direct line, as the crow flies, very quickly. How do they get there? On foot? Where do they come from? From the cities, Jerusalem, and probably you think about, you know, Paul Revere in our American context. You know, he's going through the, the villages and he's shouting out, the the British are coming, the British are coming. They're running from Jerusalem to the other side of the lake, and through every little village they go through. Jesus is healing. Jesus is healing. Jesus is healing. Man, they're packing up the family. They're packing up all the sick that they can, and they want Jesus to do for them what He's done for others, and they come running. Go back to Mark's Gospel in chapter 6. In verse 33, we read this. They ran, Mark says. They didn't waste time walking. They ran to get to where Jesus was going on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Now, some of you might, and you're welcome to do so now if you so desire, but some of you might have a study Bible or one of those Bibles that still has maps somewhere in the back of it. Now, I invite you, if you have one, look at it. From Jerusalem. To the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee is no walk around the block. You are going through mountainous terrain. You are having to circumnavigate a massive lake to choose either a western route or an eastern route. If you choose the eastern route, you're going to have to cross the, the Jordan River to go up the eastern side. Not easy especially in the time of year when this occurs. After all, we read that the grass is green, don't we? Which would indicate to us that it is in the rainy season, the spring, also the Passover is near, so that occurs in the spring. So we know that it's in the spring, we know there's been rain, which would mean the Jordan River is flooded. And so they have to take the, on the map what would be a longer route, a western route, up and around and over. And yet they come and they run and they're on foot and they beat Jesus. They're there. They don't know exactly where he's going to land, but they're in the area. As soon as Jesus lands, these are highly motivated people. Jesus is put in a position where it looks like They are dictating what he will do. He, it would appear, wants to just get away. The disciples are breathing a sigh of relief. They didn't kill us in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. We're going to go for a retreat. We'll be safe up there. We'll let things cool off and we'll come back. They get there, the crowds are there, and they're thinking, no, surely Jesus has something in mind. Well, Jesus is full of sovereign surprises. Because they're not in control, He is still in control. What might appear as unplanned to us and to the disciples was planned by Jesus and always profitable in His sovereign kingly rule. They were not going to disrupt Him. I want you to notice verse 2 back in chapter 6 of John. Some very descriptive words here. A large crowd followed him. The, the language is such that it is a swarm. A swarm. How many of you, because of our glorious torrential rains, have noticed that mosquitoes have come back to Midland? Now, I have certain members of my house who are very attractive to those Little creatures. My poor wife and daughter just get eaten up by mosquitoes. And you look around them when they walk out and they're just swarming there's are just frenetic activity all around them when they walk outside. That's the picture that we get with these people. They are fired up. I mean, they've been to a pep rally where Jesus is healing the sick and they can't wait to get their miracles. They are frenetic. They have run 111 miles from Jerusalem to the northeast side of the lake. 100, let me say that again, (laughs) 111 miles. They don't have Nike tennis shoes. They don't have paved roads. They don't have civil engineers that have figured out you can tunnel through mountains rather than go over mountains. They have run 111 miles through rough terrain in sandals with apparently no food. Because that's how bad they wanted to have Jesus do something for them. These are Highly motivated people. They're swarming about. They are swarming about. They are willing to leave the comforts and the confines of Jerusalem, their city. Picking up people as they go. They're willing to make that treacherous journey. And you say, who are these people? Who would be so possessed? I mean, let's be honest, if I asked some of you to go run with me tonight around the block, you'd look at me like I was crazy. And yet these people are willing to run that far under those conditions. Well, you actually know these people. You do. You've met them before. You met them three chapters or four chapters prior in John chapter 2. that Jesus has performed the miracle in Cana. He's cleansed the temple, you remember. And in John chapter 2, verse 23, we read this now. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover the previous year from where we are now, during the feast, many believed in his name. Jesus is my guy. They believed in his name, observing his signs, not his message. His signs. We're here for what we can get. They're like the people who go to Sam's or H-E-B for the samples, but never buy anything. They're just there for what they can get. Now, Jesus, it says in verse 24, on his part. Who are we dealing with? Remember, the sovereign, omniscient, all-knowing king of the universe on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man because he himself knew what was in man. Same people. Same people Running to get ahead of Jesus, running to get there, running to get their opportunistic moment to receive their miracle, their novelty, whatever it was. They are the same people. They want to see it again. They want to experience it maybe for themselves. They missed out in Jerusalem last year. They are not going to miss out this year. So they run The text is explicitly clear that they are not interested in anything Jesus has to say. They are only interested in what Jesus will do. They don't want the truth. They just want the treats. They just want what they can get. Now, we might expect that Jesus, having gone through the debacle in Jerusalem back in chapter 2, would say, hey guys, turn around and go home, you'll get no more today. That's how I would have responded. I've been used once, burst twice, careful, that kind of thing. But Jesus doesn't. We might expect that Jesus would refuse them. And no longer oblige the carnality of just simply temporal things that they are wanting. Because Jesus, after all, knows their heart long before they arrive. In fact, Jesus may even recognize some of them. Some of you who are sports fans, you'll remember the guy a few years ago showed up at every single sporting event you can imagine wearing an orange Miami Marlins jersey and he sat in the most conspicuous place right where the camera could I know that guy he was at the last game Jesus may have even recognized these people but we know this for sure whether he recognized them or not he knows their hearts and he will use their presence to deliver a foundational truth for everything that's going to follow for the rest of John's gospel. Again, Jesus wastes nothing, not even the carnal attempts of man, to get something to satisfy their, their base and temporal desires. He doesn't waste even that. He's even going to use that for his purposes and for his glory. So let me give you one comforting statement now, and then one warning statement, okay? Are you ready? Comforting statement first. Take heart, because there is literally nothing you can do that thwarts the plan of Jesus. Did you hear me? There is nothing you can do to thwart the plan of Jesus. If he desires to do something, he's going to do it. And you're not going to mess it up, okay? So quit being afraid. What if I make the wrong decision? What if I do this? And what if it, what if it throws God's plan off? And it's you know, No. It's not possible. If it were, these people would have already done that. So take heart. There is nothing you can do to thwart the plan of Jesus. Now, let me warn you. Take heart. There is nothing you will do to thwart the plan of Jesus. Same statement, two applications. Both true. The Pharisees aren't going to thwart his plans either. You can't stop him. And we're going to find that out as we go through this wonderful miracle. We will not dictate to Jesus. We will not dictate to God how, where, or when he's going to work. He's going to do what he will do. And the comforting thing is we can't mess that up or stop that. The warning is you're not going to stop it. Same thing. He will do what he will do because of who he is. And so Jesus, even though he's being hotly pursued for the absolute wrong reasons, from the context of who these people are and where they're coming from, Jesus yet calmly and peacefully takes his disciples up. Takes them up to the mountain. Takes them up to the place of retreat away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. He sits down with him, and this is not the sitting posture of a rabbi. This is the sitting posture of somebody who's tired. He has a lot of demands on him. And in his humanity, he rests. He sleeps. And We find ourselves happy for Jesus. Jesus needs rest. Good for you, Jesus. You need that rest. You need a day off. And so Jesus climbs the mountain, his disciples in tow, and it would appear that this is going to be a great retreat. Cool breezes blowing, green grass beneath their feet. And yet there are plans, unbeknownst to the disciples, that are rooted in Jesus' sovereign grace. Not only is he sovereign in control of the event, he is sovereign in his grace. It can't be stopped. He's sovereign in his care. And it's going to supersede our initial response of, Oh, these people again? It's not going to deter Jesus. He's going to care for those whom he is going to care for. And so as the curtain begins to rise further on this scene, and as the backdrop becomes clearer and the set becomes clearer, We begin to add some detail that color what is happening. Look at verse 4. Now, the Passover. The Passover. The feast of the Jews. The feast that defined the Jewish nation. That feast. It's near. It's close at hand. This is... Such an, uh, 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 an observed and revered time for the Jews. I mean, you, I, we don't have anything like it. So we got July 4th, we got Christmas, not like Passover for the Jews. Not at all. I mean, everything shuts down. If you can and you're able, you go to Jerusalem to all be together as a nation there to celebrate it. There are animals that are going to die. There is sacrifice that's going to be made. I mean, this is the event of all events every single year. You say, what's the big deal? Let me just ask you, what direction have all of these people in this large crowd just gone? Toward Jerusalem, or away from Jerusalem—about as far away as they can run—at a time when they should have been going toward Jerusalem. You know, they're they're going, and no doubt they're passing people going the other way. So, where are you guys going? Well, we're we're going up to I, that guy. We're going wherever he's going. Because when he stops, we're hoping to get a miracle. See some sign. Um, I guess you're not as devoted to our faith as we thought you were. You need to be going that way. There's an electricity in the air around Passover. You see, it's at Passover that the Jews often would find themselves in the precarious situation of some man walking in claiming to be the Messiah, getting the Romans all stirred up and afraid that they were about to be overthrown and having the verge of a civil war every year. It's a tense time. This is the the, the feast where redemption and a redeemer is longed for and celebrated as they remember being led by Moses out of Egypt. You can read your Jewish history. They, around Passover, that, were, that was always a constant buzz that this year maybe the Redeemer comes. And he overthrows the, the Roman bondage and the yoke, and we go free, finally. The Crowds are moving in and around in, in massive quantities, even by today's standards. I, I mean, we've got to hurry, but, but it says 5,000 men And Matthew makes very clear and takes special care to remind us this is men who also had their women and children with them. So probably, conservatively, around 20,000 people. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. That's a good-sized sporting event. And they're all running after Jesus. What do you do if 20,000 people were chasing you? That's quite the scene. The crowds are obviously unprepared for the situation. They come without any provisions. And we're looking at this and we're going. Eye roll. Sigh. Face palm. What's wrong with you people? How could you leave home without any food? Without any thought for how you were going to take care of yourself? That is just foolish. But you see, we have a human mind. And Jesus has the mind of God. And what appears to us to be foolish, Jesus says, this is exactly what I wanted. This is exactly how I determined it was going to go down. Because here is my time to demonstrate who I am. and nearly got me killed back in Jerusalem by telling them who I was. I'm going to show these people who I am. And we go from this point in going, how foolish, to how wise. How wise is Jesus? And not only is he wise because he teaches them the truth about who he is. He uses it, both the backdrop of the Passover feast and the idea that they needed bread to tell them about two important things. Go forward in chapter 6 to verse 35. Jesus uses this event to proclaim, again, one of the most well-known sermons and truths and titles of Jesus. Jesus said to them, I... Am the bread of life. That stuff I gave you. Oh, and by the way, don't forget what your father's had. That stuff called manna. No good. Temporal. You'll eat it. You'll be hungry. You're a teenage boy. You'll be hungry in five minutes. You eat it. You're going to have to eat again. But I, I am the eternal bread of life. I am the true bread, he says, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That sounds like John 4, the woman at the well. But then we go further down to, to John chapter 6, verse 52. Jesus is now talking about true flesh and blood, which he has and which he will shed as the ultimate final Passover lamb. And he says this, and the Jews began to argue with one another, how can this man give us of his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. We got bread on one hand that you need. We got a Passover on one hand that you're celebrating. And I am the answer to both. Jesus undeterred. Jesus not wasting anything. He has set this up just like he wanted it set up. They have run they have not walked into his trap. They have run into his trap. And he's about to unload some serious truth on them. It's a large crowd. It's a frenetic crowd it is a stirred up crowd that, that maybe and you'll, you'll make the connection here in just a minute that th- thinks they have found their redeemer And so Jesus asked Philip by the way Philip is from the closest town to where they are it's the town of Bethsaida no doubt Philip's looking down going I, uh, I think I know some of these people Said, quit acting like such fanboys, you know. But I mean, I, yeah. And so Jesus turns to Philip, it's his neighborhood, and he says, Philip, what are we going to do to feed all these people? All oh, 20,000? That's bigger than the town I come from. How will we feed them? Philip, I don't know. We've got 200 denarii which is about 200 days worth of wages. So just do the math in your head. I mean, almost half of your annual salary, they're carrying it. And he says, that's what we've got. But even if we take all of that, which would have bought a day's worth of bread, that's not enough. That's not even enough for everybody to get a crumb. We're in trouble Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Isn't that amazing? I I love that, that it's in the text so clearly. Jesus asked him to test him because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. First rule of interrogation, only ask questions you already have the answers to. I know what I'm going to do. I just want to see what Philip's going to say. Philip says, I don't know what we're going to do. We don't have enough. That's right, Philip. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. He'd planned it all. That's why he knows. You know, brothers and sisters, Jesus has planned every moment of our life too. And there's nothing wasted in our lives either that Jesus is not, by his sovereign care, bringing us face to face with who he is. You must deal with Jesus as the living, reigning Son of God. You must. That has implications. If that is who he is, then you must do what he says. And what he says you must do is believe and repent. Because if you do not, you're under the judgment of the king of this kingdom that has ruled so sovereignly and yet so graciously. Every moment of your life has been ordered, brothers and sisters, to bring you face to face with who Jesus is. Jesus tests us, however, doesn't he? To cause our eyes to rise to him, to cause us. And that test could be a question like he asked Philip, or that test could be a trial that we have to endure. But the point of both is this, get your eyes to Jesus. Because by the end of this, that's all anybody's looking at. Jesus reveals the heart by testing it, by questioning it, by putting things in its way that force us to look up to Him, that strips everything else away. Philip thinks like a human would think. We can't blame Philip. But he can only think in terms of earthly fulfillment. And in the scene with Philip in his mind, you can imagine the anxiety and the panic and the fear. It's dark. You see, with men, you get what men can do. But with God, you get what God can do. That's why prayer is such a beautiful thing, as we're discovering on Wednesday nights in our study on prayer. We go to the one who has all knowledge, all power, all ability, and does everything perfectly. It's bleak with men. It harkens back to Moses in Numbers chapter 11, where Moses tests God by complaining about the provisions that Israel has, having heard the cries of his people. He goes to God, God, what are we going to do? You can hear it in Philip's voice. 200 denarii is not enough. What are we going to do? You know, the honest truth is this. We all sit in here and we're fairly confident people, probably read proud people who feel like, yeah, we can handle this. We can handle life. Maybe you're here this morning without Christ. You're estranged from him. You have no forgiveness of of sin, no assurance of pardon from Jesus that you will not face the Father's wrath on the last day. So I think I can handle this. I can do this. Let me tell you what you're doing is worth. 200 pitiful days of bread. That's all you've got. What you need is a Savior who looks at 200 days worth of bread and says, that's nothing. Turn to me. He's demonstrating here that we must know Him Get our eyes to him, knowing that all authority resides in him. If we're focused on earthly things like bread, you're never going to see Jesus for who he is. And so again, we find a second earthly response from Andrew, Peter's brother. Given that there's not enough money, well, Philip failed this test. Let me step in and see what I can do. Must run in the family. Because Peter's always sticking his foot in his mouth. Well, Andrew steps in it here. Open mouth, insert foot. Given that there's not enough money, Philip, you failed. There's not even a place to buy food. We're out here in the middle of nowhere, Philip. that was you should have not you should have realized you were being set up. I've got an answer, Lord. See down there on the bank, there's a lad. That lad has five loaves, two fishes. Can, you can see Andrew start to scratch his head and say, "Why did I just say that?" It's five loaves, two fish, and it's not you know big loaves of bread. These are this is barley loaves. This is a poor man's diet. It was it was the cheapest thing you could make if you were destitute. This lad, this young boy, has five of a poor man's lunch with two fish he had caught. These are fish, no doubt, he's pulled in from shore. He's not a wealthy fisherman to go out in a boat with nets. He's too young for that, too poor for that. And yet Andrew says, well, uh, I guess the answer, if there's not enough money, must be, uh, I don't know. But here's another earthly thing, Jesus, maybe we'll use that. All All together, both Philip and Andrew missing the point. Both of them looking to earthly means rather than to who Jesus is. But Jesus is undeterred. He doesn't storm off in a huff and say, Man, not even my disciples can get this right. I'm done. No, Jesus sets about now to demonstrate his great care for the people. Guys, guys. We're not talking money. We're not talking bread. But bring me the bread. Bring me the fish. Jesus prays. He gives thanks. He has the people sit down. Matthew says it's by groups of 50, 50 men with their, with their people in groups. And notice the text here. Jesus then takes the loaves. He gives thanks for the loaves. And then Jesus distributes to those who were seated. It doesn't say the disciples do it. The disciples gather, but Jesus distributes. Jesus himself walks from group of 50 men to group of 50 men to group of 50 men to group of 50 men. There are 5,000 men. How long is that going to take you? Some of you math people can do that very quickly. But Jesus does it and he distributes. It's emphatic. Jesus distributes to every one of these groups... Those who were seated, likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted to eat, until you can't eat anymore. This is truly the bottomless buffet. And when the people were filled, the, the Greek word is satisfied. I can't eat anymore. For us, Thanksgiving Day after the dinner, I, are you going to be? What do you want to do for dinner? Not dinner. I won't eat for days. I'm so satisfied. I'm so filled. That's that's the picture. Jesus has given them everything they can handle. And they eat. And they're filled. And they're lying there in the nice green grass, on a mountainside, like a bunch of sheep. Who still have no shepherd. They had everything the world could offer them. Beautiful retreat, plenty of food, their friends, they're all together, and yet they're sheep without a shepherd. In the midst of all the tall provisions, they still are starving. They are still missing what they really need because what they really need is not the filling of their stomachs. They need the filling of their souls. You can have every material and earthly provision and desire met, and yet without Christ, they are meaningless. They mean nothing. You can be the poorest man on earth. Without Christ, you have nothing. You can be the wealthiest man on earth without Christ and still have nothing. But you can be the poorest man on earth and with Jesus Christ have everything. To eat earthly food without the bread of life is just to have sustained your life for one more day. Think about it. All these people are doing without partaking of the bread of life, Jesus himself, all they're doing is eating so they can survive one more day. One more day that according to the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, was to store up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. Three times. Oh, real good. You've just sustained your life for one more day so that you might sin more, so that God may be more angry with you. And unless you turn to Christ, that meal may have been the worst thing you could have ever received. Because you've just increased your judgment unless you bow the knee to who Jesus is. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, you see it in your bulletin, The Miracle of the Lesser Meal. This is the lesser meal. The real meal is in verse 35. I am. Am the bread of life. Jesus demonstrates the extravagance of his care by having them pick up 12 overflowing baskets so that nothing is wasted. What they do with the food, we don't know. But the point is this, that Jesus doesn't waste food and Jesus doesn't waste opportunity to demonstrate who he is and to show his glory. The abundance of what is left is many times what they began with. Remember, five loaves. Now we've got 12 baskets. And these are large baskets that would have been used to harvest fish. So think about that. How big does a basket have to be to be full of fish? It's got to be a big basket. We have 12 of those. Far greater than that, though, is the Lord who they will never fully grasp. Nor will we. The provisions of Christ and who he is for us. Will, you'll never get to the bottom of that. That's the glory of Jesus. You'll never get to the bottom of Jesus. Twelve baskets, that's nothing. Compared to the treasure that we have in Christ. That's why one of the sweetest sights in all of our lives is an older saint who's walked with the Lord many, many years. And as the hymn writer said, I love to tell the story for those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest, like the first time they've ever heard it. Because the fathomless, bottomless depth of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep, Love of Jesus. Surpassing all the rest. What a Savior. What a King. What a God. Look at verse 14 as we close quickly. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said. This is. Truly the prophet who has come into the world. Finally, he is here. Which prophet are they talking about? Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, The one promised to Moses. Whom Jesus is, by the way. They're right about that. They're not wrong. The Lord your God, he says to Moses, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and will put my words in his mouth. And there is where we go sideways with these people. They say this is the prophet, and yet when the words start coming out of his mouth, they're done. They'll take bread from his hand, but not words from his mouth. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. What they are doing is not just rejecting Jesus. Who are they really rejecting? The Father. Why? Because where do the words of Jesus come from? The Father. Did Jesus hold back any of those words? No. But they don't like those words. They're not comfortable with those words, but the people are, they're, they're excited. This is truly him. This is the prophet. This is the prophet. Remember, these are the same people who just ran 111 miles, 20,000 of them. And so you can imagine what happens when 20,000 people start getting excited Nowadays, we've got these little needles on stadium scoreboards that measure the volume. They didn't have that back then, but you can just imagine these people start getting really worked up. Really worked up because this is him. They're ecstatic. The true prophet, he's here. But like Jesus will experience on the way to the cross, many of the people shouting Hosanna on Monday, or on Sunday, I'm sorry, shouting Hosanna on Sunday are shouting Crucify Him on Friday. The same people here who are saying This is the Prophet are the same ones running home in verse 63 because they don't like the words. Verse 15 records one last misplaced act of zeal among these people. So Jesus, like chapter 2, perceives he knows their mind and he knows what they're intending to do. And what they're intending to do is come and take him by force. And our first reaction in reading that phrase is, they're going to kill him. That's not what they're going to do, is it? What they're going to do is take him by force and make him king. Make him conqueror. Make him the one who frees them from Roman oppression at the Passover. They're excited. They've got their militaristic Messiah. And they can't wait to get back to Jerusalem. But even here, Amidst all the praise, amidst all of the good that Jesus is being told he could do if he would consent to being crowned as their king and overthrowing Rome, even here amidst all of that false praise, Jesus even here will not allow himself to be compromised. So what does he do? He withdraws again to the mountain, this time no disciples, by himself alone. It makes you wonder, are the disciples even a little confused here? He doesn't even want to be around them. The second reason I would say that is because later in John chapter 6, verse 63, when the crowds go away, Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, do you want to go too? Do you feel like they feel? Or am I going to be your king? Jesus didn't come to vanquish Romans. He came to vanquish your sin. Praise God that in His sovereign rule and reign, His sovereign provision and grace, He did not stoop to become a human king, an earthly king, like they wanted. Every one of us this morning, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we look at the miracle And we say, wow, what a God. But we get to the end of the passage and we go from saying, wow, what a God, to falling on our face and saying, thank you, Jesus. You were not deterred by lesser things so that you might accomplish the greater thing that led to my salvation to die for our sins. To stay on mission. Listen, brothers and sisters, there are any number of misguided responses to Jesus here in the text this morning. And it would be good for us. To examine our own hearts and our own minds and our own excitement about Jesus and say, why am I excited about him? Is it because of something I get or is it because of something He will make me? And that is right with His own Father. By the forgiveness of sin. See, I fear we could we could even have some really sanctified. Sanctified. I mean, man, these are real good things that we want to get. Man, I want to go to heaven. I want to... I want to walk on streets of gold. I want a mansion. I want all of that. Yeah, I want Jesus because that's how I get to. But do you want Jesus? Do you want to be right with his Father? Do you want to be free from judgment of sin? It's not about what we get. It's about what Christ makes us when we eat from the living bread. Heaven is a glorious byproduct. All the good things that God does for us in the gracious life He gives us, those are just fringe benefits. The real benefit is knowing God in Christ. Being forgiven and loved by Him. Called sons and daughters. No longer enemies and strangers. Let's run to Jesus for the right reason. Let's not misunderstand who He is or what He is about. We may get it wrong. It won't change Jesus, but if we get it right, it will change us. And that's what we need, to be changed by living bread. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace to us. Thank you, Jesus, for the demonstration of your might. Being God of very gods. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of God descended and taking upon Yourself our humanity. And yet we have never lost sight of Your deity. As is demonstrated here on this mountain so many years ago. But may we, may we, by Your Spirit, search our own hearts, by Your Spirit's help, search our hearts, As to whether or not we are acknowledging you for who you are, abiding in the words of truth which you speak, and seeking to jettison the selfishness and the temporalness of our own carnal desires, may we follow you for who you are and love you for who you are. May we trust you. And if there's one, Father, this morning who has never tasted the gracious provision of Jesus and the forgiveness of their sin, may they cry out to you today, O Lord, I'm a sinner, but you are a great Savior. Save me from my sins. Confess my sins. Turn for my sins. I believe that you paid for my sins, Lord Jesus, at the cross, so that there is no more wrath. May that be their heart's cry today, Lord. Our God and our Father, save sinners, glorify yourself. We ask this all for Jesus' sake, our great Savior and King. Amen.